Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Tacticam. Tacticam is the easiest way to film your hunts, whether it's with the budget-friendly Solo or the 4K 5.0. Tacticam has something for everybody. We just got in our Tacticam Wides, and uh, those have the wide-angle lens without the fisheye look that you get from like the GoPros and everything. And... Uh, just in time for the elk hunt, Frank and Ernie will be taking those. Uh, John will probably have one out in Montana. Um, so we're looking forward to trying to bring you everything that we can. And to do that, we're using the Tacticams because otherwise Frank and Ernie couldn't manage a mobile running gun. Uh, they did do a great job turkey hunting uh, with their filming, but, uh, for whitetails and for elk, this is going to be a whole new ball game for them. So excited to have those. Looking forward to getting the Tacticam Reveal cell cams in. Um, they sold out of everything that they had, and we're just waiting on ours at this point. So um, definitely check those out at Tacticam.com. This week's episode, we talk with Ted Bright um, about, you know, he's a hunter from Missouri, um, has put down some really good bucks, prides himself on actually uh, going deep. You know, everybody talks about hunting, you know, I got to be in a mile or two miles. Uh, Ted's using e-bikes, canoes. He's he, uh, one of the things we talk about that I was rather intrigued by was actually going and camping out on a whitetail hunt. Um, you know, so if you're going back a couple miles, I always go in and come out. So it just changes when I have to leave the house, leave the parking lot, all of those things, and what time I get back to the truck. Um, so we have a discussion about you know when you would do that kind of what's the thought process there because honestly that never crosses my mind to um camp out halfway to where I'm going and kind of get into that and some hill country techniques because uh, a lot of the area down there in Missouri is uh, rather hilly but uh you know Ted's a real positive guy gets his kids involved and I think you guys are going to have a, a a good uh feel for that once we get done you know once you listen to the episode but uh i, I know your eyes are going to like this one um but i got to take a second to just uh, you know thank all of our patreons patreon is a crowdfunded you know uh funding for creators it helps us with uh some of these uh getting some of this gear getting some uh these being able to go on these hunts it helps to uh for all the costs and everything that go along with equipment for podcasting and, and everything that we're doing. So we can't thank those guys enough. 
And, uh, you know, the Patreon website isn't letting us post anything for giveaways or anything like that. But we do take most of the money, all the money that we get from our Patreons and put that right back into giveaways and things like that. So, uh, we've got a set of B sticks that we're giving away. We've got a set of Hawk heliums that we're giving away. We've got a Tacticam that we're giving away and uh base map membership. Um, I have a vitals live membership that I've got to give away. And, uh, you know, our Patreons are, are in on most of those vitals live, uh, seminars that we're doing. So, you know, they're getting the ask questions to Dan Infault and Johnny Rehart. And, um, you know, tonight was the ranch ferry and uh, we've got other ones coming up. So all of those are benefits uh, for our our patrons, for the guys that support us. We're doing everything we can to give back to them. So we really do appreciate that. And you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Bullhunter Chronicles podcast. But if that's not for you, no big deal. Um, you know, we appreciate everybody that listens. We really do. And we'd like to get more people that listen. So if you could do us a favor and just let somebody know about the podcast, you know, if you heard an episode that you know, really kind of struck a chord with you or something like that, you know, just talk to them about it. And then if you could leave us a review, just click that five star button or, uh, you know, type something up that says, you know, what you think of the show. And, uh, that really helps us as far as like on iTunes and Stitcher and all of that, get in front of more people. Um, but we really do appreciate every single one of you and we're really looking forward uh, to where this thing is going and, and how far we've come. So I know you guys are going to love this episode. Enjoy. Hey everybody back with another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast. Uh, Adam here again by myself. John's on vacation left me by myself to manage this thing that we call the bow hunter chronicles podcast so you'll have to excuse my archery knowledge ignorance as i speak with our guest tonight uh ted bright um we're going to talk about uh kind of putting in a little extra um uh, ted is known for uh you know going a little bit deeper you know we we all say you know we're going to try and go further go a little harder than the next guy but i think uh ted does that kind of uh to a t he kind of epitomizes that and we're going to talk a little bit about um that uh that style of hunting uh, a little bit so um, how are you doing tonight ted i'm doing well thank you just got home from my daughter's softball practice just in time to hop on here so uh Look forward to it, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I saw you were uh, smoking some chicken wings or something tonight. I was thinking, come on, man, we're supposed to be podcasting. What are you doing here? <laughs> Posting all this stuff about cooking dinner. Yep, yep, had to had to grill some chicken thighs. <laughs> one uh one of my favorites, that's for sure, um, and especially uh, on the on the smoker like that. This so much flavor, so much uh, you know. I don't know, rich, rich cut of, uh, cut of chicken. Yeah, they definitely have significantly more flavor, uh, and then their dry flavorless, more expensive, uh, cousin, the chicken breast. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, so let's get a little bit of, uh, intro on, uh, you, uh, Ted, a little bit of, uh, background on your hunting style, kind of how you, how you grew up and how you, how you got into hunting. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so I grew up hunting, you know, I mean, from as young as I can remember being out in the woods and 
trying to kill birds with the slingshot or, you know, whatever the case may have been. Uh, you know, I remember taking my dad's recurve bow up in the woods and uh, stringing yarn back and forth across there and flinging some of his old wooden arrows and, you know, whatever I could do to get into the woods. And then when I came of age in, in Pennsylvania, I had to be 12 years old when I came of age to hunt. We primarily hunted on public ground and that's kind of been my heritage is, you know, primarily public with, uh, you know, certain, you know, with some tracts of uh, private mixed in. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been very passionate about bow hunting. And as I evolved as a hunter, you know, I, I always rifle hunted and really enjoyed it and everything. But I'd say probably, oh gosh, probably five or six years ago now, I basically went to you know, strictly archery. Um, there was one particular buck that it was like, wow, you know, this is, I, I, I killed it with a rifle and it was a really nice 11 pointer, but I had like five encounters with this buck in from the time that I, you know, was like scouting in late July to, uh, to the time I harvested him. And several of those were with a bow and up close encounters. And then I ended up shooting one with a rifle. And at that point I basically knew that there was not really going to be any looking back and I was going to be all archery and I will still take a gun out into the, uh, out to the woods with me sometimes, you know, like if I'm, if I'm taking one of my kids or something and actually ended up shooting a really nice 10 pointer with my, at the time, four-year-old daughter, um, which I would not, I wouldn't have done. I just wouldn't have shot a deer at 200 yards like that with a rifle because it didn't necessarily interest me. But when you're taking kids hunting, it's really not about you. And she was so excited, uh, but she wasn't like, you know, clowning around, excited, acting all madman and all. She was like focused and she was wanting to blow in the grunt tube. And uh, it was just really cool. And I fed off of that energy and I got excited. And that's always been my determining factor, right? I think I can't remember. I was on a Facebook conversation just the other day with uh oh with leopard on the elite outdoors um you know it's so much about what whether or not you choose to harvest that animal whether it be a nice buck or a little buck or a doe or whatever uh is for me is circumstantial you know what has happened what has happened to allow me to earn that deer or maybe even not earn it you know if i just luck into it then you know i may not really get that excited and i may pass on you know what a would score a larger or a higher score on antlers um and i may shoot one that you know would score less on antlers but got me excited or i felt like i really earned it and you know and it was a mature buck so i got really super excited and uh because she was super excited and uh, i harvested that that deer and she was with me the whole time and it was awesome uh so and i do take a gun out in the field every once in a while but primarily archery only probably 99% of the time. And, uh, and she's actually uh, shooting a crossbow now. So, uh, she, I don't think she would do very well with the, the kick and the sound of the, of a gun right yet. And so she's, she's enjoying the crossbow. Uh, but that's kind of my heritage, you know, public ground, uh, I've evolved, you know, the last few years into extremely mobile, uh, I hunt out of a saddle and, mostly public ground that's about the gist of it okay now before we get into a, a little bit of that um 
just you you said so Pennsylvania you're in Missouri now I believe um yes. what um I guess the the style of hunting so here in in Michigan you know when I was coming up you know it was you, you go out you sit in your you, you put out your bait pile you sit at your your stand with your rifle and you just wait and you know we had a piece of private that was in one of the most densely populated deer areas um, in the state of Michigan at the time so it wasn't a matter it was never about big bucks it was just about sitting there and waiting until you know the and and you got as many doe permits as you wanted and sitting there and just you know shooting the deer that that came out you know that was it was more of like literally like kind of like the grocery shopping, um, that everybody just, you know, jokes about. Um, so like for you growing up in Pennsylvania, what was the terrain like? And what was your, I guess, uh, hunting acumen? Like, were you out there, you know, doing active scouting and kind of the things that we think of as second nature today, or, or how was that, uh, imparted upon you? Yeah. So I grew up, just south of york pennsylvania in a small town called shrewsbury right next to new freedom and it was just right above the mason dixon line and so it was you know kind of a mix of rolling hills and uh, ag country you know farm country uh lots of corn fields you know bean fields and some you know decent tracts of land i i think most of that is, is gone now and it's mostly subdivisions but um you know, I had right around our house where we lived, we lived out in the country. We had had quite a bit at my disposal. And I mean, a lot of my adventurous style of hunting has evolved from that. Uh, as kids, we would go out camping and we'd be gone for, a, you know, several days to a week at a time just camping. And I was always managing to, you know, scout during those time frames. And I, I didn't even call it scouting. I didn't even think of it as scouting. I was just learning deer behavior and it wasn't really even a uh, a conscious thought uh but then i would apply those uh that what i learned uh the next fall while hunting and you know in that area it was decent hunting um you know not i I wouldn't say it's like the mountains of pennsylvania where the deer density is very high and uh you know they don't really have a whole lot of mature bucks uh, I think there's probably more mature bucks there in that South Central area. But again, you know, I, I moved away from there when I was 16. So, you know, I'm looking at all of that through the eyes of a, uh, you know, a child to a young man. But, you know, I was just always out there looking for an adventure, basically. Okay. And and so while you were doing that, I mean, was you were you influenced like it was your father, your uncle, your grandpa, were they telling you how to do this or were you just, I'm out on my own. You said you'd use your dad's uh, recurve. So. Yeah. You know, I mean, I definitely learned, uh, learned a lot from my dad. My family has a hunting heritage, uh, but not to the level that I hunt now. And I think that, you know, a lot of it was just self-taught for, for one thing, Back at, in that day, it's so interesting because it's such a dichotomy and it's the exact opposite now. Back at that time, when a kid, a young man was coming of age to where he was going to go hunting in the woods, let's just say he went to a deer camp. Uh, that kid would 
be told to go sit on the stump in the back 40, right? And the in the the least spot where the deer spotting was least expected, right? Uh, certainly not where you'd see a big buck. In today's world, now we we cater to that young man or young girl, uh, and we have a special season for them and everything. So uh, I, I really enjoy that, especially as a father now. Uh, but it's just interesting how the dynamic has changed because now it's almost like as a parent, you know, you're encouraging all of this stuff. You know, when I was a kid, it was you just either did it or you or didn't. You know, your parents didn't really waste a whole lot of time trying to encourage you or develop it. You know, it was kind of sink or swim compared to how it is now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I just find it interesting because like, as we get into that more kind of like adventure style hunting or going a little bit further, it doesn't necessarily resonate with me as a white tail type activity. So I'm just trying to like wrap my head around that as well as, you know, there's so many people, I mean, there's so many podcasts out there. There's so many different shows. There's so many different YouTube outlets and everything like that. You know, the people that gravitate towards us are, you know, the people that are actual regular guys trying to figure it out. And they may have never harvested a deer with their bow. They may have never harvested a deer on public land. They may have never, you know, shot a buck with a bow. Um, All these things and everybody is learning, but there's so many, you know, right now in that, thing kind of like you had outlined with that dichotomy is there is so much information out there some of it good some of it bad um and you know when you think about being you know influenced that that early of an age you know there's some guys that were just you know taught by their grandfathers who were you know mountain men type stuff and they were actually teaching them and there were so many uh like you say where they just said well you know go over there and sit and wait and see what comes by. And I think that that happens more often than not. So as you, um, you know, I want to get into kind of like the, the, the backpack style, uh, whitetail hunting, because like I said, you know, when, when we were talking earlier, like it's almost kind of like a romanticized thing. You know, I see guys that do it in, in you know, Pennsylvania in the mountains and, and, and that type of thing. But I, it just never, I mean, uh, how big of a tract of land are you going on? Where are you? Uh, how are you, are you doing this while you're scouting as well? Um, it, take us through like how you plan out one of these hunts and, and kind of, kind of do it and like in where you're at and, in the terrain and that sort of thing, what makes it a necessity or is it, is it just, you know, for the adventure? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that's a combination of both just to kind of answer your question a little bit directly at first, and then I'll peel back and get into some of the details, but, um, definitely some of both, you know, I mean, a lot of times there's going to be adventure associated with it, but at the same time, um, uh, I'm not going to go through the work of a bunch of adventure if it's going to put me at a disadvantage on harvesting a a nice buck or whatever the case may be. So, um, you know, when I, I'd say what, what originally got me started with adventure style hunting for whitetail was probably with canoe access. So I would, I would canoe in uh, on certain river properties and, um, specifically the area where I used to live, there were, there's several, uh, chunks of land and they're pretty big, you know, like 5,000 acres, 7,000 acres, uh, 3,000 acres is another one. And 
and there's all kinds of national forest around as well, which is almost limitless in uh, southern Missouri, and lots of rivers and even bigger, big enough creeks that you can float in and stuff like that. So that was kind of the start of it, where I would, um, you know, I've always enjoyed canoeing, I've always enjoyed camping and hunting, so why not combine them into an adventure style hunt? But then also you get the advantage of, you know, you're not starting out in the parking lot with the with the rest of the hunters that morning or that evening. So that's kind of what got me started. And then, you know, I've uh, incorporated the uh, bikes into the equation as well. So um, there for several years, I was just using a regular mountain bike uh, with a pool behind cart. And then a couple, or I guess last year was my first year I upgraded to an e-bike. And yeah, that's been awesome. But again, you know, just the recurring theme of adventure, any, any type of adventure I can add to it. Like even when I'm hunting around my house, uh, I could easily get in my vehicle and drive five minutes or whatever, wherever I'm going. But I, I like hopping on that bike, even if it's 20 degrees out in the morning and it's a cold ride, it invigorates you, it wakes you up. And then for me, I don't know. I just really enjoy that adventure aspect of it. So uh, I'll hop on the e-bike 10 out of 10 times. So how does that change where you're, uh, or does it change, you know, where you're um, scouting the properties that you're looking at? Because, I mean, for myself, I mean, like, example, I went, it, my scouting trip on Saturday was a three and a half mile loop um, back into this spot. And it never occurs to me, you know, that I could camp halfway back there or uh, anything like that. It, it just never enters my mind. Not that it's, you know, uh, unattainable, but I would just think that I would be like, I don't know, messing it up or, you know, uh, something like that. Or maybe that's not far enough to go. Uh, I mean, how far are you going from, say, your parking area? You know, what is a typical uh, hunt, you know, look like? Uh, a typical hunt on public land for me is going to be, you know, I'm most likely going a mile back at least, you know, whether that be walking, riding, canoeing, whatever. Uh, I'll do, you know, whatever it takes to get farther back than than virtually anybody else, you know. Uh, and those creative means certainly help with that and, and again, make it adventurous. But I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't limit myself or I don't uh, – pigeonhole myself with with anything you know it's almost like you know the woods in the fall is like my sandbox so if you know in your situation if i'm three and a half miles deep um yeah i would absolutely i would be thinking okay if i know he's bedded here um i don't know just for uh, hypothetical if i thought that the scenario lent itself better to uh hunting his bed in the morning and getting in there you know, an hour before daylight or two hours before daylight or whatever, I would just go in you know, at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And, you know, throw a sleeping bag on the, on the woods or, you know, whatever hammock and sleep for a couple hours and then walk a quarter mile uh, to the bedding area and, and kill the buck. Uh, you know, I, I just, that's how I, I work. That's how my mind works when I get myself in those situations where I'm trying to figure out how to kill a specific deer. Yeah, so so that it's just odd. It, it, in my mind, it it does not 
like work that way and like you know um you know a mile back in or um you know a I, a lot of times it's not even the, the distance. It might be three quarters of a mile, but it's so nasty and thick that it's going to take me, you know, 45 minutes to an hour uh, to get back there. And I don't ever think about, you know, going in ahead of time and just being like, well, if I just camped out, because I mean, I don't know, I guess I think that there's other deer or other things, you know, moving through that. So when you're doing this, it's for a specific animal it's not um on um you know setting up on a spot or or something like that well i mean that depends on the scenario you know certainly rut hunting you can hunt locations you know especially if you know in between bedding areas or you know pinch points or whatever the case may be but um by and large yeah i'm i'm looking to target a specific deer Okay, so let's d- dive into that a little bit. So if you're going back in uh, a mile or two miles or whatever, um, how are you locating these specific deer? Because I think that that's one of the things that most people, um, uh, I don't know, kind of like struggle with. I know that I do. It's like I've never been, a, uh, I, I guess, to put in the work ahead of time to locate these animals, you know, to figure out, to pick one and then, transfer that into my sole goal for the season is to kill this one specific animal. So if this animal's core area or he lives or he beds two miles back, how do you go about scouting that, that hunt? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there's a a lot of variables there. (laughs) Um, Well, I think that's that's why people struggle with it, right? (laughs) Certainly, certainly. I mean, I I guess what I would say to that is that it's constantly changing. So, um, you know, scouting isn't just done up until the middle of September in Missouri or up until October 1 in Michigan or whatever the case is. You know, you have to have the MRI, the most recent intelligence. You know, what I have noticed is that patterns are going to change, uh, in, in my opinion, on about a, every six to 10 day basis. So throughout, let's just say, you know, late September, uh, buck bedding is going to be pretty uh, habitual. Uh, but as soon as, you know, the leaves start uh, falling, the acorns start falling those patterns start to change quickly. And I found again, that they're going to last about six to 10 days typically, and that's going to be on the bed to feed pattern. So, you know, as the, as the, the different leaves fall, it may render a certain buck bedding area to be not as attractive. So, you know, that, that buck is going to move off of that area and, and change. So once you find that a buck is bedding in a certain area, you only have a limited amount of time to make it, to get it done. So, you know, I, I've always been of the school of thought that you might as well push the envelope, uh, during that time frame because it's, it's just not going to continue to bed there, you know, all the way through the rut and into late season, just, just not what they do. But how are you locating them two miles back or, you know, you know, in a situation where it's going to take all of this amount of, uh, effort to get back there and and do it how are you how are you scouting that animal how are you getting that most recent intelligence 
to say, okay, I'm going to go through all of this for this specific hunt. Well, if it's properties that you're familiar with, you know, you're probably going to have an idea of where you could expect a buck to be betting. So if you're familiar with them, but you haven't been there, let's say that year yet. So, you know, you're kind of walking into, um, you know, a, a new scouting area for the year, but you're familiar with the property. So in my mind, you wouldn't even really need to look at a map, although it's always helpful to have it on your phone or whatever. Uh, but you'd be able to hit those spots and see, is there any buck activity here? You know, I mean, the sign in October is going to be pretty obvious. You know, you, uh, you should be seeing some rubs and some big tracks and you can always start from, you know, where you suspect the food will be, which, you know, should be relatively obvious and, and backtrack it. And then, you know, certainly check out the, um, uh, the key and specific areas that you think would, would house a, uh, a buck during the day and from there um then you know you just try to get set up on it and have a, a setup that I, I like to refer to it as the trifecta where you can get your your entry trail uh the prevailing winds and the thermals to all jive uh, within proximity to that bed on the direction that that buck is going to move uh to hopefully get a good ambush on it Okay. Yeah. And like I say, like for myself, I mean, I, I'm, I'm starting to put this together, but I field questions almost daily. Um, if not, if not daily about, you know, what would you do here? This is a situation that I have. And, um, you know, I, I pride myself on being fairly transparent that I do. I'm, I'm not that great at it, you know, so <laughs> that people are asking me, uh, how to, uh, what, what I would do. Um, it, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm learning just as much through this as, as, as they are. Um, you know, and I, I kind of understand that, but like I said, I think one of the things that people struggle with as well as myself is, is locating, you know, said target animal, you know, so, you know, some guys use, you know, a million trail cameras. Some guys are using cell cameras. Some guys are just looking for big tracks. Some guys just go to an area and look at it, put their thumb in the air and, and kill a deer because that, you know, they've got that much experience and, and the ability to to do that and so I guess when I think about these types of you know if I if I were going to go in and I, I guess I would think about it like um, we are talking about and kind of like where my head is at right now getting ready for elk hunting is you know I'm going you know thousands of miles away to a place that I've never set foot on and I'm I'm doing just that, putting all my eggs in one basket, uh, essentially, in this week-long hunt or 10-day hunt, whatever, with camp on my back. And we're going to go look for these spots. But I'm not saying I know in this gully there's this big 6 by 6 that, you know, I have history with or, or anything like that. So, you know, for people that say, I'm going to target this one animal, um it's something that I always, I want to, I want to learn more about because I'm not at that level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just takes lots of practice. Um, it, but rest assured with that practice, you can definitely get to where you can look at a map online and you can 
within minutes identify on you know a, a, a decent sized piece of property uh, where you would suspect to be to have buck beds and then you know you just got it boots on the ground um, go check each and one of those spots you know make, make a route and you know you may have some uh, some creeks in between that you want to check out crossings or you know swing by a food source also and look for tracks but if you can map out and have a plan see when i was a teenager i would just go in the woods and randomly you know walk around and didn't have a plan necessarily but now i can become i'm a lot more efficient with my scouting because i'm i've already have a really good idea of where i want to get and where i want to go on a scouting trip and it just becomes almost like a speed scout as eberhardt would say well and i i've i'm fortunate now that I've talked to uh, a lot of you guys that that did come to Michigan for the the public land challenge so it's a perfect opportunity to kind of um, use that as a, a perfect example so um, when you uh, came to Michigan having I'm assuming never been here before at least in that area and hunted because Michigan isn't a real uh, destination hunting state um, how did you uh, approach it from a scouting standpoint? Like how much time did you spend scouting uh, once you first got here versus, you know, time on stand? Because I think a lot of people, like, uh, for example, like when we went to, I went and hunted Missouri last year, you know, we went and spent the first, you know, entire day up until, you know, an hour before dark um scouting and then we finally just got up a tree wherever we were just to see what happened um you know just by happenstance but how did you uh, approach that because I, I mean it's a perfect example of a new area um going in yeah so it was totally new i'd never hunted in michigan before uh never even been to that part of michigan and um you know i've never hunted marshes before so that was a totally different dynamic. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've, I've watched a lot of videos, you know, uh, Dan and Paul's videos are excellent on, on marsh bedding, swamp bedding. And so I kind of had an idea just, you know, from, uh, just from devouring content, you know? And so when I, we got there, uh, I think we had a couple of days before the, the challenge actually started and, I, you know, I mean, it rained the whole darn time. It literally rained every single day. But, you know, we just went out and got wet and, and scouted uh, every day. Uh, but it was unique. And, you know, you and I were talking about this uh, via Messenger. But the, the amount of sand in the soil there makes it very conducive for seeing tracks. And one of the things, you know, I noticed was that there's a lot of these, you know, gravel roads or um I don't know, county roads or whatever they are that go through these larger tracks of public ground. And it was fairly easy to just, you know, coast, you know, go along those roads and you didn't even have to go super slow uh, to see where deer were crossing and then just pop out real quick and see, is there a track here that I would like to, you know, uh, follow for a while and see what this terrain looks like. And so that, that was a really effective way. I think, you know, we got onto a couple of different really nice bucks by uh, just by doing that. One in particular 
you could see exactly where that buck was coming and going from bed to feed. And he was betting, you know, I, I, I got to the edge of where his track stopped on the trail and it was at the edge of the, the public ground. But just knowing the how far we were from the food source, I'm guessing that he wasn't bedded far onto private. And uh, Jared Schaefer and I actually set up on him, I think twice, or maybe I set up on him once and, and then Jared and I set up on him together. And we never did see him. Uh, we had a, the, the time that Jared and I were in there, you know, I thought that we had a lot of things going right for us. It was a good setup. And I thought that, you know, we had really had a, a chance of, of having an encounter with that buck that night and a doe just came right underneath of us, literally right underneath of us. And when she got past us, she smelled our ground scent and she just came unglued blowing all over the place and everything. You know, we might as well just have uh, climbed down at that point, but of course we waited it out. And so I guess, what did you see for, um, for deer, uh, in Michigan? I, you know, talking with, um, you know, Zach and Dan and Joe, you know, they, they all were super, and Ernie, I, I feel like I talked to dang near everybody that was, that hunted here. <laughs> Matter of fact, um, that, uh, that they were surprised that they mounted deer and deer sign. I mean, uh, you know, Dan, he said, you know, he thought, uh, you know, everybody was saying, oh, Michigan, there's not going to be any deer, you know, they're going to, they're going to know that you're there from a mile away and, and things like that. So what were your impressions of, of that? Or were you hunting specifically these buck beds and it's kind of like an all or nothing type scenario? Yeah, that's what I was doing. Definitely. But I mean, I was still surprised at the amount of deer, you know, we'd be driving around seeing alfalfa field in the middle of the day, you'd see deer out in there. And uh, to me, that was just uh, in contrast to the way the picture has been painted uh, by a lot of other people. So yeah, I was surprised at the deer numbers. Uh, but I was even more surprised at the amount of mature buck sign that I saw. And this was, you know, keep in mind, this is, uh, I think it was like October. I don't know what it was. Fifth through the 10th, give or take. Yeah. And in the rain. <laughs> Torrential oh, downpour. It, yeah. Yeah. It was something else. And, and so what that ended up really favoring uh, Dan and Jake and Joe and, uh, whoever else was with them. Right. And so I guess, what is the normal terrain that you hunt? Cause I, I, I kind of want to get into that too. So the normal terrain that I hunt is, uh, it's kind of, kind of a mix of hill country and farm country. So I, I moved a year ago. And, uh, so first of all, like the, the hunting that I did around my house, I actually hunted a little bit more private last year than what I typically do because I wanted to build a foundation of knowledge of deer, or, you know, local right around my house that I'll be able to tap for years to come when I get home from work in a pinch and I just get, you know, and we have an hour to get out there or whatever, you know. So, and of course, with just, uh, you know, with moving and everything, you know, it was just kind of chaotic. So I hunted more uh, private and it was, you know, like I said, in this area, it's mostly hill country with some ag mixed in. But where I lived for 25 years, uh, you know, like, an hour and 20 minutes southwest of here uh, was more in the heart of the Ozarks. Uh, so less ag, more hills. Okay. And so I'm not, I've hunted 
um, a little bit of hills in um, in Missouri last year. It was it wasn't terribly hilly, and then when we hunted south uh, southeast Ohio, um, that was like the foothills of the mountains down there, and so that was that was way more hilly than um, I was used to, and I think it's more towards the traditional hill country. Um, what are some of the things that, I mean, a, a guy that's never hunted in that sort of, uh, situation, um, might not be aware of or take for granted some of, some of the key things to look for when hunting in those situations. Uh, I mean, the first thing that pops in my mind is thermals, you know, I mean, if you're not, you know, thermals are going to be more prevalent and, more more predictable really though too uh in hill country so that's that's one thing but you know so i'm kind of in this situation right now where you know i'm leaving for nebraska in two and a half weeks for the opener there and i've never hunted nebraska um i've never been to this area where i'm hunting or anything and you know i i prefer the i prefer the hill country uh, I just, for whatever reason, I just am drawn to that. I like it. And I like the, I like hunting timber, uh, preferable to, to, uh, to open country. So, you know, I kind of picked an area based on that and Shane Simpson's going also, and he prefers the open area. So, uh, we're going to be in the same general area and, and camping together and everything, but, uh, hunting in two different areas. Um, but you know, it's all about, you know, getting online, checking it out. There's so many resources online, not just Onyx, right? Onyx is the easy one. Well, I got probably more information um, from a phone call than I did all of the online resources combined. And that was a phone call to the local wildlife biologist who was a, a young man who's passionate about hunting. And we literally talked for an hour and he gave me all kinds of intel uh probably the most important of which was access you know so i figured well we're, we're taking kayaks and we're going to get creative on our access that's going to put us uh extra deep as you said <laughs> so you know there's all kinds of resources um just because you haven't been to an area just because you haven't hunted that type of uh environment you know that's uh that's not, it shouldn't be a limiting factor, especially if you look at it with an open mind and an adventurous mindset. Oh yeah. I, I was just thinking of, in terms of like how deer use the, the hill country or where they bed or, um, things like that. I mean, so when I was there, you know, there seemed, I heard like, so when I went to Missouri, um, you know, I had heard, you know, all the deer just run the tops of these ridges and you know, all this stuff. And we hunted some ridges and seen some deer. Um, but I wasn't putting together like the, the way that they use the terrain until I got back and started to like really kind of analyze what exactly was happening and why they were moving, you know, the way that they were based on some of the uh, you know, the steep drainages and, and things like that, the benches and, and stuff like that. I was, I was just trying to look for, uh, some of those types of things where it might be different than hunting, say big timber or some of that open country. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I bet one of the things you noticed when you got back and you were looking at the map was the strong tendency of leeward betting. Uh, I don't know if, if you had, you know, usually in what time of year were you there? Uh, we were we were there in November. Okay, so you had some strong windy days, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Were there? Did you notice that trend of uh, the deer were stacked up on leeward betting? Um, I was trying to hunt like in between bedding areas and, um, yeah, I guess now that I'm looking back on it, that's where we were seeing more of the, the, the movement. Uh, and it wasn't oddly enough, it wasn't where the sign was. So I knew that it, we, we knew that it was bedding and we were trying to set up between these two bedding areas to catch these cruising bucks. But all the sign was on the other side, and the betting was was on the leeward side, yeah. Yeah, I think that in November, you know, if I'm not, it's, that that's going to be, especially if it's, you know, if it's a windy day, um, and where I'm hunting is, you know, has some sort of a steep um, leeward slope, that is the most predictable um indicator for hunting in my opinion is leeward bedding because the does are going to be there and if the does are there then the bucks are going to be there and i mean deer just that's such a strong tendency they're not going to bed on the windward side i just i you just don't see that on barring some you know crazy circumstance or whatever but to me that's probably the most predictable um thing to indicator to hunt in november yeah, when I was in, like, when I was in um, Ohio, I was hunting along this big ravine, thinking that nothing would travel down that. And the first, literally, the first deer that I saw in the state of Ohio on stand was about a hundred and twenty inch ten point that just popped out of this CRP field and slid on his back legs like sat down front legs up and slid all the way down to the bottom. And I, that was something that I didn't would have never expected. I mean, I don't think deer in Michigan think like that, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So just and, when you think they don't, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of what I was looking for is like, you know, the, some things that are just, you know, that's just the way that the, the deer do. And then, you know, after the fact, you know, cause I hadn't talked to anybody in Ohio or anything like that. And they said, yeah, they, you know, when they see that you'll go down the road and you'll see these big hills and you'll say the slides and that's what they call deer runs. Cause the deer just basically slide down the side of these, these mountains and stuff. And it's just, just, just crazy. And then the, what I also found was like, again, like on these big, big drainages they were using those as like pinch points you know and, and that's where i ended up seeing the only buck that i could have shot you know that gave me a chance was i was set up again between these two bedding areas and we had seen some sign and these deer kept going around the edge of this this big drainage because that's basically the only way that the only spot that they could that they could use but that's something that I just don't look at here in Michigan when I'm looking at 
you know, any sort of terrain. I don't, I don't, I don't think about that kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I have had, personally, I've had, uh, some really good successes the last few years just on cyber scouting and putting myself in a position. Uh, and that kind of coincides with, you know, where we were talking about a minute ago with the leeward betting two years ago, I went to a, a, a piece over in uh, Western Missouri that I'd never been to before, never hunted or anything. And we, my son and I, he was, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 at the time, whatever. Um, we drove over there, I think it was like on a Friday or whatever. And we got there in time to hunt that night. And I think that it had rained like all night and morning. It was a muddy mess. We took the bikes because we knew we wanted to get three miles back to this one particular area. And it was so muddy, we couldn't even take the bikes. And so uh, we walked all the way back and he was able to, uh, we were both in saddles and he was able to uh, shoot a nice eight point buck, his first buck with a bow and everything was awesome. And then of course it was a late night getting that thing out from three miles deep and everything. And we got back and we celebrated some and, you know, I still had to find a place to hunt the next morning. So, um, I just, I wanted to get back to that area and then, and go further and push on. And again, I just, I'd never been there. So I was just looking at the map and I, I knew that after that front came through, that wind was going to be picking up and it was supposed to be like a, a stiff 15 to 25 mile an hour, I think, out of the southwest, I think, that already had came back around. Um, and it just, there was one spot that just stuck out on the map as a great spot to, you know, a strong leeward bedding, um, you know, with basically a northeast facing slope with that southwest wind and i went you know through the dark i was following my onyx you know and through the woods and part of it was trail but most of it was just timber and i was blindly going through here and i uh just as it was starting to get light i picked a tree and climbed up in this tree and i i saw, I saw more deer that day than than any day i've seen it on in in a long time uh there all the does were piled up on there in of course, with all the does attracted the bucks, and I would say probably about uh, 10:30 in the morning or so, the woods erupted with two big bucks fighting, and they were like 100 yards away. As soon as they, I waited till they stopped. As soon as they stopped, I rattled and you know could barely set the antlers down uh, in time to could for to see this nice big 10 pointer charging my way, and uh, he came to right underneath my stand or underneath my saddle. And I was able to harvest him. And, you know, it was just kind of cool to be able to see that on a map and identify the leeward bedding. And, I mean, the deer were just all around me all morning long. I bet I saw 20 does that morning. And, of course, again, it was November, so the bucks are going to be where the does are. And so how did you set up on that, that bedding area? I just used a combination of, you know, the onyx map on my phone and in the gray light what i could see you know to try to get at the right uh elevation on the hillside and if i remember right i was probably around the the, the two-thirds mark you know um two-thirds of, you know a third of the way from the top and 
uh, you know, just using the combination of that and what I could see in the, in the gray light at the time and, you know, make sure I had some shooting lanes and everything. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not foolproof, uh, because, you know, those bucks were fighting a hundred yards away and, you know, if they were just happening through or they didn't, you know, have, uh, an encounter together and get all charged up, then, you know, maybe he wouldn't have responded, uh, to the, to the rattling, although I suspect he would have, because they were battling it out for possession of the does on the hillside that day. Uh, but you just, you know, it's, it's tough when you're going in blind, uh, but it can definitely happen. And, you know, I think it's a lot of it's just a feel where you think, you know, you need to set up um, because you certainly can't see that great as it's barely getting light. Uh, and then a lot of it is, you know, having an idea of where you want to go ahead of time on the map. And I have a little method that I use where uh, I didn't get a chance to use it this time because I didn't really make up my mind until that night before that's where I was going to go. But um, if I know where I'm going to go ahead of time and I've never been there before, then I will, from my computer, from my PC, I will draw a shape. You know, on Onyx, how you can do an area shape. Mm-hmm. Um, I will draw a shape of the general area that I am interested in hunting and, you know, you can speed walk or whatever, you know, to get there. Uh, but once I am approaching that shape and I can see it on my phone, then I know, all right, it's time to slow down and look for sign and look for a place to set up. Okay. Now, uh, when you talk about that two thirds of the way up, that's something that has, um, again, for guys that haven't hunted, uh, a lot of hill country or, or anything like that, that's something that's always, or more often than not become a problem, uh, for me is the hunting height. Because if, you know, you're at that two thirds mark, then if you get up too high, I've been, you know, high enough to shoot that two-thirds mark you know you're out of the eyesight and i've had deer walk down the top of the ridge where you could like grab them i mean they're you're eye to eye with them and then you know because of the thermals and things like that if you i've i've had that scenario happen and then other times i've been like all right well i'm not going to go that high and i'll go lower and then you're eye to eye with the ones that are at the two-thirds level and it's like (laughs) finding that that perfect spot to be on the side of the ridge um have, have you found a, a a good answer to that or a quick <laughs> well every every circumstance dictates you know different subtleties and nuance but i have found that you if you're not sure or you just don't have a feel for it either way then you better go with that two-thirds and the law of averages would definitely support that because the reason why they're on that leeward side is because, you know, they want protection from the wind. But also, that wind comes over the top of that ridge, and it. Uh, so you've got the wind coming over the back, so that they can smell from behind them if they're looking downhill. And then you also have the thermals rising. So that two-third mark is typically where a mature animal is going to walk or bed because they can smell behind them. And then they also get the thermals coming up and that creates this little wind tunnel of, you know, a, a eddying effect 
of the thermal and wind currents uh, that enables it gives them a better smelling advantage both up above them and down below them. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was just talking about like how high up in the tree because that's where I've been like literally eye to eye with these deer and like it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, that's totally situational. I'm sorry. Here I am talking about uh, where on the hill. Uh, I don't ever again limit myself on height of the tree or I have no preconceived notion on height of the tree because I'm going to go as high as what I think it takes to kill the deer. Um, there's plenty of times where on a hillside, you know, early season, you can get away with 10 or 12 feet. Uh, but typically I get higher and higher as the season goes on and the foliage is lost. But again, every single tree is different. And what are you using, uh, for a climbing setup? So the last few years I have used, uh, Cranford strap-on steps with a CMI etrier and I just tape the etrier to it. So, um, you know, they wad up to about the size of a softball and I don't know what it is, probably about a pound each. And I, I, with four of them, I can get 30 feet most of the year. I am just using three of them and I can get to 22 feet probably. Uh, no problem at all. It's quick. It's easy. It's simple. Uh, takes a little bit of skill to, to get used to it. Um, especially coming down, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very effective way. And, uh, you know, it's kind of adventurous too. So I really enjoy it. Um, I am going to mess around with, uh, I got some leverage sticks this year and I'm going to be playing with, uh, some fixed and movable aiders and, I'm, I'm going to play around with one sticking. Um, it's never really interested me before, mostly because of the fiddle factor. But I have recently seen some, some methods of one sticking that have piqued my interest. But I'm, I'm going to explore that some. I doubt that it will happen this season, but it, is, it, it does interest me. Yeah, one of the days I was hunting in, in Missouri with the um... – uh, on one of those uh, ridges there i because of the way that the land shaped out and everything i in their lack of leaves i think i was up probably 30 35 feet and i used um my sticks and a movable aider and um it was uh, that's the method that i prefer i've tried the to mess around with the wild edge i've messed around with the multi-step aiders and you know the fixed aiders and all that stuff and i just i i would rather it just be simple <laughs> i think yeah yeah i always encourage people you know the first year of saddle hunting keep it simple uh stay with sticks you know you you're going to have a learning curve with the saddle uh although it's not not terrible by any means but um there's no point in you know trying to introduce another variable and Sticks are simple, and, and now the sticks have come so far that, you know, you can truly get a pair of sticks. You used to not be able to really get sticks that you could literally haul around in the woods, and it wasn't cumbersome, bulky, noisy, uh, you know, because I don't think there's really any way around it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, so the the first uh, climbing sticks that I started with um, were the leverage sticks, and they're not – it wasn't – 
for me. And I don't know if I didn't have the, um, I hadn't mastered, you know, climbing with the sticks, uh, but that they kind of soured me of the moving parts aspect of, of sticks. Yeah. 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 Climbing methods are kind of like our rear ends, right? Everybody's got a different one. Well, and the, the, you know, when you talk about, you know, going online and trying to get information, you know, I, I talked about it with, with Jason Red, uh, with the Timber Ninja on his sticks, you know, no matter what your setup is, no matter how comfortable you are, no matter how small it is, no matter how proficient you are, you know, there's always some internet jockey saying, well, if you just did the one stick method, uh, you know, it'd be so much lighter. And, you know, if you just did, uh, you know, uh, SRT or DRT, you know, you'd be so much further ahead. And it's like, you've got guys that are getting into saddle hunting or mobile hunting, you know, getting away from their climber for the first time. And you're filling their head with all of this stuff. That's just not realistic, you know? Oh, I, you, I, it's hard to believe though. I mean, some people actually use an HP to look at Onyx on their computer. I mean, doesn't, don't they know that the, the Microsoft uh, surface is so much more mobile, right? <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, it is. It's, everybody is only all about their way. Uh, it seems like, but you know, um, a lot of that also just comes from passion towards trying to share ideas that you've came across or, you know, that you've mastered or whatever, you know, so sometimes it just comes across wrong or whatever, but you're right. Everybody's got that opinion on the old social media. Well, I think it's a big like ego thing, you know, nobody wants to, you know, whether you spent money or time or whatever, trying to figure something out. And it's like, you just want your way to be the best. You're trying to, it's like self-validation and, you know, again, like for us and, and having a podcast, it's like, I, I would have never sat on it in my life. I thought it's the stupidest thing ever. Um, but I did it simply because I felt to have a, a honest conversation about it. I had to try it. And now I don't see myself going back just from like, uh, uh, you know, you said fiddle factor, but I just think like the simplicity, it's like, you know, if I'm going to climb all the way up here, and have to set another thing or do another thing. It's like, I'm already attached, you know, it's, uh, it's one less thing to mess with, <laughs> I guess. I mean, in, yeah, in my I opinion. Um, and I don't know, maybe this year after this year, you know, my second year into it, I'll be like, well, you know, maybe I want to try something different, but I mean, at this point it's just, just trying it out. And so I've, you know, Last year I hunted out of the trophy line in the Mantis, and this year I've got um, added a, a a phantom to that mix. And um, there's another company out of Michigan here, the Latitude Saddle, which I think I'm going to get one of those to try it. Um, and for the fact of being able to have an uh, a conversation about it, you know, because yeah. there's so many there's so much bad information out there when it comes to all of this mobile hunting stuff. And I mean, the, the saddle hunting is, is one thing, but I feel like for the most part, um, they've all figured out a way, um, 
to kind of play together nicely where if you go over to like the tree stand world right now, it's like, <laughs> Oh my God, like, it's just getting pretty nasty. <laughs> yeah. People make fun of a saddle hunter. You gotta be kidding me. right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, nobody wants to hear about it. And you know, I, I, I can't wait. Uh, I was supposed to have uh, Parker McDonald on here a while back. Oh, man. And uh, I'm excited to, to talk <laughs> with him because I'm just going to bust his balls because the everything that, you know, social media has like a cliche about, which is, you know, you got to kill him from a kayak. You got to saddle hunt. You got to have a podcast, all of these things. I mean, Parker checks all the boxes, right? And I say that in the most endearing way, um, you know, it's all in, in good fun. But I mean, if, if you let social media get to you, it's, you know, it's doing more harm than good. And, you know, it's a, it's a tangent off of your, your climbing method there, but I mean, it it just, you know, you have to use what, what works for you. Right. If you're losing sleep over what Johnny Dingleberry said about your climbing method, then you might want to rethink a few things, right? Right, but I think people are really, you know, uh, at the heart of it, there are people that are trying to figure this out. And if you're going, if you're, if you're, we'll just say to go mobile. If you're going to start mobile hunting for from the the first time outside of a climber everybody's product is the best. Everybody's fans are the best until you purchase said product. And then everybody piles on and says, Oh, you should have bought these or these or these or the next newest best thing comes out. And, you know, people struggle with that. Like, you know, if you don't get it right off the bat, you can spend a lot of money chasing down, you know, what works for you. So it's a, it's a hard go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at really guys now, I've got it made. Uh, it's, I shouldn't say that, you know, it's still, there's a learning curve and it's, a, there's a significant investment and such, but it is a lot easier than, you know, several years ago. Um, you know, saddles were just there. There wasn't the options out there. Um, there wasn't the comfort, there wasn't the efficiency. I mean, you know, I had, I, I hunted out of a couple of, uh, new tribe, uh, saddles and, and, you know, they were okay. My first year, of you know, I was using this big bulky thing that was much more resembling a, an arborist saddle. Um, and I mean, I just couldn't imagine hunting out of that thing today. And then I went to the, the Ketra, which was a fine saddle, a very comfortable saddle um, and excellent in the tree. But I couldn't wear that to my tree. And I didn't really even think a whole lot of it at the time. I just really liked the saddle. Then when the mesh saddles came along, that was next level. That's when you can, when you can wear that saddle in and it frees up all that space in your backpack or it allows you to downgrade from a frame pack to, you know, a more typical size pack. Um, then you become a lot more mobile, you know, you're not a lot less bulk, you're carrying less stuff and it just allows you to hone your system a lot better. To me, that was a big advancement. Yeah. And like, 
you know, for me being new to it and, you know, just hunting out of what, uh, I guess the options that have been available. I mean, I, and our stance is to try to be, you know, as objective as possible, right? Because the worst thing is sounding like bought and paid for or, you know, whatever. I mean, we're friends with everybody. Uh, and that's one of the hard parts is because, you know, the problem with the saddle community and the companies for the most part, I'll say that are involved with it is everybody's just such great people, you know? And so, you know, you don't want to step on any toes, but you know, you might not like something just like you might not like a Ford over a Chevy over a Dodge or whatever. Um, it, it's just kind of like, what's your process? I mean, I like, I think the, the trophy line saddles are fine. Um, I don't care for the bridge, um, but I don't think that a guy that's just starting out who's trying to save some money or, you know, not, you know, trying to um, justify a purchase to his significant other or or whatever, um, you know, I I say that saddle hunting is so uh, different than tree stand hunting. It doesn't matter if you use a rock harness and a sit drag if you use a anderson tree sling a jx3 whatever it's going to be so weird and so different and no matter what you're going to find something that you like about one and you don't like about the other one and then so the question is you know so is the is the phantom worth the money well all of that adjustment is i mean ultimately better. I mean, you can get a more customized fit. You can get everything, you know, uh, adjusted the way that you like it. But does that mean that everybody's got to run right out and get one? I mean, uh, you can make that decision for yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like what you said about how the 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 companies in the saddle industry and I guess your, your listeners should probably know that, um, you know, I, I am on the, the staff at Tethered, so uh, just disclosure there. But, you know, the, you mentioned that the companies in the industry, for the most part, play very well together. And, you know, I would definitely agree with that for the most part. Um, but, you know, like when we went to ATA last year, there's a reason why the rest of the industry is embracing us, right? We're we're these crazy saddle maniacs are are new to a very established industry and they they're looking at us uh objectively and and with respect and such and i think a lot of it is because of the way that not only the companies but um the saddle hunting community has handled themselves you know yeah and And i think it's cool to see yeah and i think you know, I mean, I made a post the other day uh, replying to somebody because they were saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there was just a, a standard that everybody could um, uh, be held to as far as safety and, and everything? And I said, you know, the 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 thing is, is with the with the guys that tethered and they're not the only ones that are involved in creating the standard, but they're definitely uh, on the forefront is that they're saddle hunters uh, first. And they, I I mean, you know, I've heard Greg say it before, but it really is kind of like, um, a metaphor. So it's not, it's not, uh, 
actually what I'm what I'm saying, but you know, it's like the nerds that all of a sudden are cool. Like they're like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for such a long time. It's really, you know, it is cool. They, they, and I'll, I'll include Trophy Line and Sean in that. Is that you know they want just more people to be saddle hunting. It's not that you know they everybody thinks that their product is is the best, but they truly believe that you know saddle hunting is the most efficient and best way to hunt and they want more people to get into it and if people are putting out products and they're getting hurt or you know their the products are unsafe or or things like that then that doesn't do anything for the sport of saddle hunting and it's not going to garner more more people you know so i mean ultimately the guys that are you know so involved in banging the drum and all of this stuff for uh saddle hunting in its in its own right they are championing saddle hunting and they just want people to try saddle hunting. And, you know, whether it's tethered or trophy line, they think that their product is the best. And ultimately you'll, you'll settle on their, their product, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, all of the, the good things that you mentioned that come from that, even the business results do, because, you know, you don't, you don't become a, a highly successful company and, you know, a leader in an industry by being a pushy, one-sided, uh, you know, annoying, salesy type of company pushing product. You know, success comes by um, adopting a culture of um, inclusion and just being passionate about sharing, like you said, um, sharing what we think is, you know, a, a, a better way for a lot of people, not, not all, uh, but it's a better way. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's highly mobile. It's uh, highly effective, highly efficient, all of the good things. And, you know, that's what, that's what great companies do. And so uh, I guess getting back to the, the topic that on hand and kind of, uh, kind of rounding everything out, how do you feel like, uh, what do you think are the, some of the most, um, uh, important things or the most influential things, uh, like if you were to say like three things, um, you know, that have allowed you or that have pushed you or that have, uh, driven you to, um, kind of adopt this, you know, go further, you know, kind of stay out, go past everybody type, uh, philosophy on hunting. And I think it's, should be said that it's, it's very, um, you know, pretty awesome that you're um, passing that along to your children too and involving them and in that that style of hunting and not you know catering uh you know not telling them just sit over there on the stump um but also not just saying like here i'm going to do all the work for you i mean you're you're bringing them along on these these hard hunts as well yeah yeah and i i mean to answer your question i i think that you know, the, the foundation of my passion towards the um, adventuristic side of hunting is it's just rooted in my childhood. You know, I, I just, I loved any kind of adventure, you know, I mean, it certainly took me down the wrong path several times, but, but it was always an adventure. <laughs> uh, so, you know, not just with hunting and outdoors, you know, I just was always looking for an adventure. Um, but then, you know, at just, you know, kind of specific to hunting, um, 
my the when I switched, you know, when I when I knew when I recognized, I had the epiphany that rifle hunting just really wasn't stoking the fire for me anymore. Uh, that was definitely a significant contributing factor. And then it was kind of interesting because right on the heels of that is is when I started really like getting back to my roots of public ground, um, getting mobile, and then right on the heels of that uh, came saddles. You know, I somebody introduced me to a saddle, and this is before it was mainstream. And I, you know, I was like, "What in the world is this thing?" Even you know, it, um, I, I tried on my buddy's 20 year old trophy line leather tree saddle i mean the thing weighed 10 pounds and it stunk like a horse saddle and uh i couldn't figure it out it was big bulky and um i couldn't even imagine trying to use that thing uh but he used it for 20 years and he killed big bucks out of that thing uh interestingly enough to bring it full circle uh that gentleman that introduced me to saddle hunting and i tried that old trophy line um, he bought a phantom, uh, just oh, about a month ago or so at the teaching train tour here in St. Louis. So <laughs> it was really cool to be able to, uh, to see him there and, and try it out. And he was like, yeah, yeah, there was no way he wasn't going to leave there without buying a phantom. And it was, it was really cool to see that. And it's even neater to think that, you know, Hey, I was able to, uh, to help this guy to, to help influence him into you know the next step the, the a better more efficient way so um yeah just all those things the adventure side as a, as a kid and i'm still kind of a kid at heart and uh you know going mobile uh ditching the gun the rifle and uh, then of course the evolution of the saddle and all of it has just led to i just i am always looking for that adventure Awesome. So, um, you said you're headed to, uh, Nebraska, any other adventures on the horizon for you for this season? Uh, so I'm going to go to Nebraska for the early season and then I'll come home in Missouri opens, uh, September 15th. So the opener in Nebraska is September 1st and I'll, I'll be there for that. So I'll hunt that first week and then Missouri season opens on the 15th. And, uh, you know, we've got a bead on several really good bucks around our area here. Uh, so hopefully we can get something done there pretty quick. And then I've got two buck tags in Tennessee this year. So I could foresee some, uh, you know, some weekend trips to Tennessee. And then I'll have my second buck tag. Uh, we'll be eligible like the second week of November here in Missouri when uh, the tether crew is going to be coming to town again for another hunt. Awesome. Awesome. And so where can everybody follow along with, uh, you know, kind of all the hunts and everything that you've got going on? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I appreciate that. I am on Instagram as Teddy bright 21. I do a lot of, uh, posting anything, hunting, kids, hunting, outdoor adventure stuff. And I do a lot of cooking also. So especially wild game cooking, I, I do a lot of posting on that type of stuff as we kind of talked a little bit earlier and then on facebook it's just ted bright and then uh i'm on youtube also and i've really been putting quite a bit of effort into trying to build the channel uh which is called hunt fit ted okay 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to catch up with you if you're at uh, ATA again this year. And uh, we'll definitely be in touch throughout the, the season. But uh, good luck to you if we, we don't talk to you before uh, September. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, it was fun being on the cast. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.